Hey folks, welcome to the House of Kraus. I'm Richard Kraus. Christmas is over. If you were very lucky, under your tree, you unwrapped a present, it was a book, and you found that it was a book called Fearless as Possible Under the Circumstances by Denise Donlin. Canadians know her as one of the groundbreaking VJs on Much Music, the, the station that changed the way television is made, not only in this country, but all around the world. She went on to become the producer of that channel, then a vice president, general manager. She ran Sony Music Canada, CBC English Radio Language Services. She's been everywhere in the cultural context of Canadian life. She's worked with everyone from Leonard Cohen to Joni Mitchell, Celine Dion, Diana Krall, goes on and on and on and on and on. And she's written a book about it. She's written a book that tells not only her story, but the story of someone who has been at the very cutting edge of a, a cultural life in Canada and what that means, not only to her, but what it means to the country. The book is called Fearless as Possible Under the Circumstances. The author is Denise Donlin, and we were happy to have her at the House of Crux. Let's go back, though. Let's mm -hmm. go back before you were on TV, before you were running big corporations, before you were doing all that stuff. Uh, you were uh, um, the manager or the publicist for Doug and the Slugs. You mm -hmm. did a lot of stuff like that. What was it that drew you to that kind of um, that kind of job and that sort of area of of uh, employment? Well, I always loved music and always loved culture in general. Um, but the and I realized pretty quickly when I was at university you know, performing on my guitar, mangling John Prine <laughs> songs, that I was not going to be a musician, right. um, at least that would make my living from that. Um, but I loved the music anyway. And there was an opportunity to, you know, be the college buyer at the University of Waterloo. Right. So I just learned it by doing and, uh, and learned well, that I love working with the musicians. And was there a thought, though, that you would do this as a career? I mean, you know, at the time when I first started writing, I never thought I'd actually make a career of it, but, you know, eventually it kind of happened, but mm -hmm. I, I, I didn't really expect it. I did it because I loved it. And, and that was, that. was that the same for you? Yeah, the same. I mean, it's, it's been a very weird career path, you know, yeah. running from the White Snake tour to booking <laughs> concerts to, you know, much music and Sony and CBC and on. So, and they, so I've never been one of those people who do, well, let's do a five-year plan. Right. It's just an opportunity opens up and you decide that you're going to jump in the pool whether there's water or not and uh, try and have an adventure at the same time. Yeah, because it, you, and you detail this in the book, the career path has been a little unusual. <laughs> and and, and I, I often wondered about the skill set that is required to run Sony music uh, versus being a, a VJ on Much Music. Well, uh, um, yeah, so I was a producer when I went to the New Music um, and then Much Music when I r ran the station. So that the skill set that I learned in being a manager yeah. of uh, the nation's music station helped me a lot uh, going to Sony, obviously. Um, but it is, it's t it, the book talks a lot about um, being a woman in these big yeah. male-dominated industries, and so there was a factor that always came in there. 
Um, but uh, but you I, seem to kick through those doors. <laughs> well, time I'm six after time. feet tall, so <laughs> I have a long reach with that foot. Um, but it was but it was tough. I mean, first of all, you know, you have to deal with your own insecurities, and second of all, you're learning new businesses, and particularly at Sony when I, I went in there was exactly the moment when Napster was born. Right. Right. And he was a disruptive little Dickens, yes. and uh, he li- liked to give music away for free. Yeah. And um, by the time he reached his terrible twos, he. Began became the the David to the industry's Goliath. So it was a tough business to be in the time, especially when you're learning it, especially when you're the only woman in the room a lot of the times. And people would say, did you lean in, Denise? And I'd say, I was leaning in so far my feet were off the ground. <laughs> I mean, it, was, it was a tough time, but but it was always the music that seemed where you'd find your buoyancy, right? right? Working with artists and helping them reach the biggest audiences they could. That's what, where you found the joy. So mm-hmm. talk to me. Let's go back a little bit then. We've jumped around a little bit. But talk to me a little bit about being a road manager. <laughs> and that's you were a road manager for a long time uh, before the new music and all that stuff. Tell me uh, what skill set that requires, what you learned, and what you know, what's the unexpected stuff that happens while you're on the road with, with Doug and the Slugs? Or White Snake or, or White Snake Trooper or whoever it is. Or, yeah. yeah, it was actually I never went on the road with uh, with Trooper, but with Kiss and with, uh, with Headpins and Quiet Ride. And, wow. and then we ended up in the in Europe, the White Snake Slided In Tour in 1984. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just part of the crew on, yeah. on that tour of Europe. Um, you know, it, it's kind of like, what you would expect, like if you've, anyone's ever read the Hammer of the Gods yeah, tour, yeah, yeah. right? It was a big, big hair, full machismo, on stage, you know, fry your earlobes kind of experience. But also the surprising thing about it was it's very much a business, right? Yeah. So you hear these stories about uh, roadies walking around with their brassiere collections and all of that, and sure that happens, but also at the end of the day you know, they're more likely to be walking in with a briefcase and making sure that the show goes up, uh, you know, when the lights go on right. and that we're in the city, next city at the right time, and that, that, that it operates the best it could for the audience. Yeah, there's an interesting movie, uh, the name of which I can't say on the air, uh, about the Rolling Stones. Robert <laughs> Frank made a, a, a cinema verite movie about the Rolling Stones, and it was never released. He got carte blanche. He could do whatever he wanted and film whatever he wanted. He's in hotel rooms. He's on their jet. There's na- It's debauchery. There's <laughs> naked women at the very beginning of it anyway. Mm. You see them. There's naked women. There's all. It, it, it's insane. It's exactly what you think a big 1970s rock and roll tour would be. Uh, and then later, it settles down into the guys with the briefcases. And mm-hmm. there's, you know, a little bit of drug use, but it's usually them going, uh, is the PA set up properly? Is the And... I finally got a chance to see the entire film from start to oh, finish. Oh, you're lucky. And, well, and I realized that, you know, that last hour is pretty dull because it is just the day-to-day workings of of how to mount a giant rock tour. And I thought, that's why they didn't want anyone to see it. It's not because of the debauchery, <laughs> the debauchery. and the drug taking <laughs> and all that stuff. It's the boring stuff right. that happens later on, which I imagine is about 60% of life on the road. Right? It is. I mean, you know, you go to a big show and it's very exciting and it's gymnastics and yeah. pyrotechnics and, you know, melt your eardrums volumes on stage. But then people go back to their hotel rooms and they're alone or we're on the bus and it's all, you know, somnambulance and flatulence <laughs> on the bus. And I have to say, Richard, there's nothing that will, uh, you know, 
ruined the idea of rock god stardom than watching your lead singer with his bedhead, you know, yeah. in the laundromat <laughs> under the fluorescence folding his smalls. I mean, you know, <laughs> there are two sides of it. <laughs> My guest in studio is Denise Donlin. Her book, Fearless as Possible Under the Circumstances, is available where fine books are sold. Fine and not so fine books, too, I'm sure. <laughs> sold everywhere, and you can download it legally, of course, and read it on your Kindle and all that sort of thing. And it's a, a, a look at a career spent uh, behind the camera, in front of the camera, uh, in boardrooms, on the road. Uh, a fascinating look at that. What was it that made you want to write this book? Because we were talking two years of your life to sit down and, and write this word by word. word Stacking up those words word, is pretty yeah. tough. Yeah. Well, uh, mainly because I was asked. My right. publisher, Sarah McLaughlin, said, you should write a book. And I thought, leading with my ego, of course I should. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you should always be aware of decisions that are led by your ego. Um, and I thought, you know what, I've got lots of celebrity stories and maybe I could just get them down before they fall away to the ether of my mind. But as I started writing, I realized that just writing about celebrity was, it was a pretty hollow pursuit. Mm -hmm. And and why would anyone want to read my stories anyway? I'm not Oprah or Aung San Suu Kyi or Malala, for heaven's <laughs> sakes. So I worried about it being an unearned memoir, as right. they call it. Right. So then I started to write thematically about leadership and feminism and humanitarianism and, uh, and those kind of uh, things. And then it turned out to be 1,200 pages. I know. And it was a double space pages? No? No, I think single. Wow, Ugh. wow. Although That's a huge book. It was a huge yeah. book. And uh, so I gave it to my fearless editor, Janie Leon, and she helped me. And she said, you know, it's a memoir. You should write chronologically. <laughs> <laughs> I know, duh. It was a head-slapping moment. Uh, but then I did. And then I settled down, and, uh, and I found that a lot of what fell away to turn into a 500-page book, which is a bit more manageable, was that I, I really did want to write those stories which had a message about using your powers for good, right? right? And that, I think, became the essential, the essential narrative of it, the theme. Yeah, and what did you learn from that process? I know that in books that I've written, uh, the, the editing process can be grim. Mm. I, I, I tend to, to overwrite and then we'll Me bring too. it back, yep. you know? Uh, but you have to learn to let go of things that you think are vitally important, and then you start to realize, eh, nothing's yeah. that vitally important. Exactly. You know, it's... Yeah. For you, was it a similar? It Very similar. And first of all, I had to learn to write in the first place. Right. The first three months I spent, you know, writing, you know, dire polemics about feminism, <laughs> um, none of it made the book. Mm -hmm. I mean, there there's a lot of feminism in there. But um, at the end of the day, and my husband, I remember, Marie McLaughlin was my husband, and I remember handing him a chapter at one point, And he read it and he said, you know how you write? And then <laughs> that can never be a good starter. I know. I know what I'm looking at him, right? Full of anxiety. And he says, and then the rock star was hit in the head by a piece of lavatory ice. Let me tell you everything I know about the Canadian aviation industry. <laughs> and I did. So I had to really pare it down. And, um, and then it actually became a little bit fun. But you're right, the editing. Yeah. I would get these fantastic notes from my editor. And, and I thought I'd hand her a mess and she'd polish it up and make it brilliant. More often what I got was, I strongly suggest you delete this entire chapter. <laughs> <laughs> so she saved the reader. Thank you, Janie. <laughs> and, and so what, it, what do you want people to take away from the book? Then, because there are celebrity stories in here, it's peppered mm -hmm. with them, but uh, it's not just about that. So what do you hope people walk away from? The, the title suggests... 
fearless something. as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that, I mean, I, at first I thought I would write it for my son in case he really wanted to find out what happened on that white snake slided right. in tour. Um, but then <laughs> it became... That's such an 80s, uh, an 80s title. Yeah. David Coverdale, yeah. you know, they're still going, oh, made, yeah. you know. But then I started to realize that it was, I think, the people that will find value in the book, aside from what I'm told is that it's wickedly funny, love that, um, but also that they will find um, a sense of not purpose so much, but confidence, maybe. Mm -hmm. The confidence that, that I didn't find, even writing the, the whole book, is that, yeah, you, you can stand up for your principles, you can do what you believe is the right thing, and guess what? Even if you do get thrown under the bus, off we go again, because living an unprincipled life is just not worth the effort. Just before we started taping this, we were talking, we're next door to the building where much music happened mm -hmm. in the in the early 80s. You were around for a good chunk of that, and you said something about, um, I like the, the, the challenge of it, I like the beginnings, I like the growth, I like the excitement of it. Tell me a little <laughs> bit about what it was like. I wasn't there. I watched it on TV. I would walk by the building and try and peer in the windows quite often, but they wouldn't hire me. So I want to know <laughs> what it was like. What were those moments like? Because it just seems like a burst it, of creativity. It was, and it was so exciting. And yeah. it was so I was brought in by John Martin to to host and uh, uh, well at first on Rock Flash. So I had to come up with my yeah. two minute news bites uh, right. every hour, which was crazy because there was no such thing as a Google. You just had to yeah. phone people and find out. <laughs> um, but, That's why they were only two minute long. Two exactly. minutes Exactly. And you could never repeat anything because yeah. we the conceit was we assumed that everybody would watch it for twelve hours straight. And guess right. what? They did. They kinda did. Well we used to yeah. I mean, uh, around that time, uh, I was working in bars, and we just—it was just on. We'd—you'd throw it on because there were videos, and music, and like, yeah. and so you did. People would watch it for hours and hours in a Well, it was the mecca too. It was—you know—we started off at 99 Queen uh, East, and then moved yeah. to 299 Queen West, which is right where we are now. And, I mean, it was the Mecca. People, thousands of people, especially when we started doing those big events like yeah. the Intimate and Interactives with Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and, and then the, the Live at Muches with the Spice Girls and the yeah. Backstreet Boys. I mean, we were the ultimate noisy neighbors. We were closing the street down every couple of weeks. Um, poor neighbors. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the Much Music Video Awards, of course, just got bigger and yeah. bigger and bigger. Um, and I think the difference, I think what Much Music did that was different from many musical outlets, because there started to be more and more around the world, was that we did invite the audience in. Mm -hmm. The interactivity was key to it. And it was also key to me um, for the initiatives that I wanted to undertake. We, I, was, I was very excited about not just playing, you know, sugary music videos back to back, but I wanted to inject a little spinach in there every right. now and again. And so we did media literacy initiatives like Too Much For Much, where we yeah. asked the audience, what do you think? Let's deconstruct this video. Is that the right thing to do? Uh, should we censor it? Should we not? Even though censor was a crazy word. Um, and and the intimate interactives and where people would just come down and commune and that was very very different. Yeah, um, and no one. Yeah, the, it, it sort of erased that line a little bit, which we've seen erase further and disappear mm -hmm. almost completely in the age of Instagram and Twitter and all that kind of stuff. That connection, but it was very different. You got a chance to sit, you know, this far as as close as we're sitting, uh, you know, if you were in the front, uh, to and, and and ask questions of your favorite band. I remember hearing. 
doing a story about Iggy Pop in the building right. one day. And they're like, do you want to do a live and interactive? He's like, what's that, man? And they're yeah, like, right. well, you just, and they just pulled people in off the street and did it kind of an impromptu off one. He went, and yeah. then he went into the street too. Yeah. And I had to go home. My son was, was just new at that point. So, and I had a little talk with Iggy <laughs> before he went because Iggy was prone to language. Right, right. And he, he looked at me very solemnly. Oh, yes, Denise. Oh, I'll be very good. Oh, yes, I understand that it's live. And oh, my goodness, he went out and it was effing after yeah. effing after effing. And I was trying to get through on the switchboard to get the delay put on, right? right? Seven second and, delay. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Uh, those were the days, eh? <laughs> yeah, they were. And and the, the burst, as I say, the burst of creativity that were happening in this building um, really changed things. I mean, if you look at MTV... MTV kind of borrowed uh, liberally from what was happening here, down on a mm-hmm. little kind of, at the time, desolate strip of yeah, Queen Street. Yeah, yeah, Well, and it was a challenge for Moses, too, because, yeah. and I write in the book a lot about um, the history of Chum Television internationally, yeah. because that story hasn't actually been told. Right. And when Moses wanted to expand world domination, you know, we went to um, Finland first with a, a, a station called Yerki, and uh, <laughs> Barcelona and Colombia were the FARC stole the city right. TV pulse trip right. everywhere and then returned it, which was hilarious, um, because of Speaker's Corner. They said it was the first time that common people, ordinary people, had gotten on the air and right. therefore they liked the station because of the democracy. So, um, but yeah, the, the whole intellectual copyright piece for Moses, because he wanted to franchise the brand, and yet it's hard to control what you can actually see in plain sight by right. just turning on the television. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of expansion. We went into the U.S. Uh, with Much USA, you know, talk about a David and Goliath story. Yeah. Um, and then ultimately my, uh, MTV came to Canada. The book is called Fearless as Possible Under the Circumstances. Denise Donlin is the author. The book's available everywhere right now. It would make a great Christmas gift. I'm just going to plant that in the world right now. <laughs> I couldn't possibly think. <laughs> <laughs> and so with all this expansion happening, um, do you think that it sort of uh, took a, took you out of the, the, the hub here and, and, and made it feel a little different for you? It did. I mean, I had to learn not just about how to interview artists and how to make great television. I loved being in the edit of the bay. Mm. You know, I hated doing the interviews because I hated seeing myself on camera. But I loved doing the research. And, and I mean, it's just a privilege to be able to sit down and talk with some of the greatest artists of our time. It's an absolute yeah. blessing. Um, but I had to start learning less about the craft of television and more about the business of television. And, uh, and that was interesting. But the great part of it was... We were in a time of immense growth. Yeah. We were adding digital channels and digital channels. And I even enjoy going to the CRTC hearings, which has something quirky <laughs> about my psyche. said no one ever. Yeah. <laughs> no one ever. Um, but, yeah, it was a time of great growth. It was also a time of, um, you know, out of necessity comes creativity because mm-hmm. we weren't rich stations. We were building on top of, uh, on top of existing stations right. and amortizing our resources all around. So when the job offer came from Sony to to run a big record company, I thought, wow, I want to fly business. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to get out of the baggage cart and go into business. I don't want to throw nickels around like manhole covers anymore. And then, of course, I walked into Sony and uh, and the, the rug got pulled out from the record, uh, from the labels. So. Yeah, that was an interesting time. <laughs> uh, you were working at Much Music and expanding all around the world. And then you decided to take an offer from Sony because you wanted to ride business class and hobnob <laughs> with giant movie stars and, and, and music stars. 
And then Napster came along mm. almost simultaneously, and the world changed. And it wasn't just the music industry that changed. The world changed at that point because uh, and in those moments and in those months and years that followed, people embraced electronic equipment like the cell phones uh, mm-hmm. that I hold in my hand, now, all this stuff, in a way that they just never had before. Must have put up roadblock after roadblock to you. Tell me, uh, first of all, what it was like when you first got there and then the creeping realization that things were changing. <laughs> yeah, there was it, – it was a crazy time because I literally walked in and that's when sort of the impact of illegal file sharing started to uh, to hurt the industry. And at the beginning, you know, there was this um, – deniability, right? Everyone's right. like, oh, yeah, That's, we'll just sue our way out of that, and yeah. it's not going to be a problem. Which is what they always had done before. I mean, the music industry, much, I guess, like the, the film industry at the same time, was, you know, you couldn't count the money fast enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, totally. Yeah. And we, you know, it was very disruptive time, and, um, you know, the music industry is just starting to recover now. Yeah. So I got there in two, 2000, 2016 now, and it's the first year the worldwide global revenues on on recorded music have actually taken a tiny uptick, right. 3%, which is, you know, a rounding error in most other businesses, yeah, but yeah. we saw it as a, as a great sign of, uh, of, of restoring health to the business. But it, it was a very difficult time, um, and we used to, th- in Canada, in some ways, because we were the number one per capita downloader in the world, right. right? So I would go to my international meetings like, like Chicken Little, the sky is falling, <laughs> the sky is falling. They're like, oh. But, it, you know, it, it took a while to get, to get around it. And I, in the book, I talk, and it, it's quite dense around the, in this area, but it really talks about what we did as an industry, where we went wrong, where the mea culpas, where mm-hmm. we could have done better, how we could have embraced it. Um, but it was a disruptive time, and you're right. It's happening now to all of it, newspapers, yeah. the film industry, the book industry, yeah. everything else. So there's a lot of lessons to be learned from the music industry, and it's a time of great disruption and, and change. The, my challenge with it is that at the end of the day, it's the content creators that need to be right. taken care of. And by that, I mean not only the musicians and the, and the, and the filmmakers, but the journalists, yeah. um, you know, and the authors, etc. Because I think you can tell a lot about civilization uh, or the health of the civilization by, uh, by the artists and the creative class. And we need to figure out ways in the new technologies about how to ensure that they're compensated. Well, you know, for 20 years from now, think about what it's going to be in 20 years ago. 20 years from now, it will be a different thing. Mm-hmm. The way that we receive music, our information, everything will be a different thing. And I like to, and this is probably kind of Pollyanna, I like to think it will be as good or better as it is right now because I think right now we're taking baby steps towards all this stuff. I'd like to think that eventually we're going to be able to figure out a way to filter out all the fake news and all the you know the information the the, the opinion and I'm using air quotes here that is presented as fact all that mm-hmm. stuff i'd like to figure in that in 20 years from now we'll have stepped beyond that that will be better than that um, because right now is the bad time i think we're in the the dark ages of this because we haven't figured it out and the music industry didn't lead the way in a lot of ways well it's true and there was also you know the music industry was battling on all sides right yeah. from their consumers from the 
artist who yeah. didn't want to side. I mean, we saw what happened with Metallica. With Metallica there was yeah. a, you know, a rehab situation. I'm not saying there's a cause and effect there. But no, anyway, but, but, but so if you, if you don't know, Metallica, mm. uh, unlike a lot of other bands, said, you know what, we're going to start suing people that are downloading stuff and alienated fans and, 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 and yeah. caused turmoil both within their camp and outside. Yeah, I know it's true. But what and what underlied the whole thing was there was a promise of the golden age, yeah. right? If the record companies went down, then suddenly there'd be more instant access to market. You could get rid of all those middlemen, those yeah, yeah. middle people that were, you know, holding the creative forces back from from the population. But it didn't happen. The golden age never happened. Mm-hmm. And what happened to artists is be- they became they became hustlers, right? They instead of spending their ten thousand hours working on their craft, yeah. they were, you know, crowdsourcing and licking envelopes and and um, and being their own uh, complaints department and distribution department and and yeah made them hustlers. It took it makes it takes their eye off the creative piece, which yeah. I think is a is a problem. And now you know the biggest problem is how do we get paid? You know everyone's like oh there's lots of exposure, put your music up for free, but the idea of the starving artist has never been truer. And it hollowed out the middle. And you know we always say that the artists might die of exhaustion if exposure doesn't get them first. Well, what I always say and uh, you know you get asked to do free stuff all the time but i always mm-hmm. say is well you can die of exposure in this country exactly. and, and and it's the truth exactly you know? well it's true and also you know the new streaming services there's a lot of artists up in arms and and because there's a big gap between you know exposure and how you get paid there's yeah. crazy examples in the in the book um about you know taylor swift and her challenge with spotify and with apple yeah. feral he was very unhappy. He was the, his publisher and writer royalties from 43 million streams of Happy over three months. Yeah. He made two thousand seven hundred dollars. Yeah, like one of the most popular songs of the last decade. Exactly. Yeah. So, and it's all we're already seeing it in in Canada. I mean, there was a stat that was um, put out by the Canadian Independent Recording. Um, um, agency saying there were 28,000 active artist entrepreneurs in Canada. It is down nearly 50% since 2006. So where are the future Jan Ardens mm-hmm. and the Drakes and the and the Diana Krolls? How are they going to be impacted? The book is called Fearless as Possible Under the Circumstances. The author is Denise Donlin. It is available everywhere that you buy books. Mick Jagger said just a few years ago, they, the Rolling Stones have a new album coming out, the first one in a decade, I think, <laughs> or almost. And they've gone back to the roots. I haven't heard it yet, but it's a, a blues album. Apparently, it's quite good. But he says that the days of people getting rich off music are pretty much over. Mm, Except for a, a, a small, maybe a handful of the Katy Perry's of the world. You yeah. Know? Well, I mean, you used to be able to tour. You toured to support the sales of a CD. Yeah. Now you make a CD as an advertising for your tour, yeah. So, which is fine. I mean, you can make money on 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 merchandising yep. and ticket sales and all the rest of it, but it does change the creative element, right? It means that you have to be very good live. Yep. And uh, there's a lot of artists who aren't really good live. <laughs> Van Morrison, people who, yeah. who are some of our most beloved artists, you know, are, are not doing gymnastics and leaping around in pyrotechnics on the stage. So it is changing the creative culture substantially. Do you miss the music industry in that way? Like, do you miss the, the, the opportunity to, to create change and nurture 
artists in I that do, way? and that's part of the reason why I went to Sony in the first place, yeah. because when the videos came to Much Music, the artists were, you know, in many ways fully formed. They yeah. already had the record, they already, you know, there was the video. So I was really looking forward to um, engaging with artists, you know, from the ground up and marketing and promoting and celebrating them. Um, I still have a lot of friends in the music business, so I still go to a lot of shows. Right. My challenge now is I'm just twitchy sitting in my seat. I feel like I should be backstage doing the accounting or something. So, <laughs> and it's also hard to listen to the radio without my autonomic response being, oh, that's a great song. What label's it on? What chart number is it doing? Right, it? It, right. You know, it's hard. So, to, so I am enjoying just being able to enjoy music for the sake of music again. I, I found years ago, I used to review books for a number of uh, places, number of outlets, and I had to stop doing it because it kind of sucked away my enjoyment of reading. I love <laughs> reading, but when everything you have to do is analytical about it, it hasn't somehow over 20 years, it hasn't happened to me with movies, but with books, it certainly happened. I had to stop reviewing them because I wanted to actually be able to enjoy them. Right. You still enjoy music. Though. I do, but I bet there's time when you're sitting in a movie theater and you're starting to lose and you're saying, hmm, I love that dolly shot. Oh, yeah, yeah, that happens. And oh, you know, either that or like, how many times can you look at your watch and then like if, if it's you know if you've started looking in the first half hour you know mm -hmm. that it hasn't engaged with yeah, you. Yeah yeah. Well I, I like all the cultural industries mm -hmm. music, art, ballet, you know, all of it. So and you know Canada we do pub, uh, punch above our weight when it comes to our creative class and and long shall we I hope. <laughs> Leonard Cohen, you wrote a nice piece uh, recently about Leonard Cohen. You worked with him. Uh, he obviously passed away recently. Legendary artist. Mm -hmm. And you guys were friends and then had a bit of a spat. We did. <laughs> yeah. Leonard, it, I mean, Leonard's the ultimate artist in, in many, many ways. You know, he's true to his art. He'll stand up and fight for it. And, um, you know, so and the, the challenge with a, with true iconic legendary artists is if you're a record company president, your job is to bridge the art and the commerce, right? right? And somehow help the artist uh, with all the tools that you have at your disposal to reach the largest possible audience, uh, hopefully put food on the table and, and help them live a comfortable life. And at the same time, um, so, yeah, you get into these, these friction areas on occasion. Um, and so, yeah, there was one story. There's a couple Leonard stories in there about crazy listening parties we had sitting, you know, with our feet under a bed. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but the story I think you're referring to is uh, we were doing a compilation record with uh, Leonard at Sony called The Essentials. Mm -hmm. And it was a time when compilation records made huge money. Um, now, of course, you can make your own compilations yep. with your with your iPhone on iTunes. You can curate your own. You can yes. curate your own. Um, and so he didn't want to do another compilation record. I had to convince him to do it, and we eventually did. And when he went in to remix it and remaster it, and it was all great. And then he sent me the final track listing, and it was a double CD. And the track listing was missing the song So Long, Marianne. Probably one of his most famous songs. His most beloved songs. Yeah. And so I thought, oh, there's some mistake. And anyway, we got, he said, no, you know, it was never as good as, as uh, in, in reality as it was in memory. <laughs> and he just put his foot down. He did not want to put So Long, Marianne. And so, of course, you can imagine that forecasts for the sales of the records plummeted around the world. People were like, well, they weren't even going to put it out because they thought the critics would be angry yeah, yeah. because it was missing the big song. It would be and, like putting out uh, a Beatles best of without She Loves You or, hey or something Jude, or Hey right? Jude exactly. or something. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so my job was to convince him that it had to go on and he did not want to do it. And we eventually got into a 
fight on the phone. And he was so angry at me because I had to insist. Right. And I, you know, he was n angry not just at me, but at every publisher, every record exec executive, executive, sorry, every every corporate suit that didn't support the art, right? right? right. And I had to convince him that I did support his art and, and you know, I mean, I had Leonard Cohen on a pedestal so high it had its own lighting and its own cherubs. <laughs> and because uh, I'd known him since the Much Music yeah, days yeah. Uh, and interviewed him often. Um, anyway, so I had to insist. We put down the phone. I went home. I was shattered that I had to go against Leonard's wishes. And what he'd said to me before we hung up was, Denise, if you go against my wishes, if you do what I've asked you specifically not to do, then you need to know that you will forever have, in my heart, a much smaller place. I know. That's devastating. I was breathless. I couldn't talk. Yeah. Anyway, I went home. I may have had a glass of wine. <laughs> and uh, well, I called his manager and just said, you know, we're going to go forward and I'm going to put So Long Marion on the record. Anyway, the next day I got this. And the reason I wanted to include this particular story in the book was because he sent me an email that was literally an apology email that I reprinted in the book uh, that was so beautiful that it, it was, you know, in the butcher shop we call these, uh, in the butcher shop of the world, these are small matters. Your heart, your place in my heart will be, you know, forever strong or whatever. I'm paraphrasing it such in the book. Um, so I wrote the story. And I was nervous about it, right? right? Because it makes him out to be a little cranky. Yeah, yeah. And um, and so a few months ago, before we were heading into the time for the book to be published, I I cut and pasted it, and I sent it to Leonard, and then I held my breath, and then about three hours later, bloop, Leonard pops <laughs> up in the email, and he says, Denise, he said, uh, I'd forgotten that incident. <laughs> it was like, I in haven't. my brain, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and he said, uh, your rendition of it made me laugh. Please publish it with my blessing. Sings Love Leo, right? right? And uh, so when he passed uh, a couple of weeks ago, it was I was gutted, um, and uh, he will be dearly missed. But I believe that his legacy is so uh, strong and so beloved that that Leonard will live on. The book is called Fearless as Possible Under the Circumstance. Denise Donlin, the author, is my guest. I guess that Leonard Cohen, like a lot of artists, and, and you can tell me, uh, was someone that was more interested in the next thing rather than looking back. Mm -hmm. Is that mm -hmm. perhaps like the prevalent kind of attitude? I think so. Leonard was one of the most thoughtful artists you will ever meet. So he was he was always weighing, you know, his even, you know, going up on Mount Baldy when yeah. he, you know, never, uh, uh, he was always, Judaism and, yeah. and Buddhism could coexist with him. Um, and he looked, I mean, if you look at the song, The Future, he, yes, mm -hmm. he is looking forward. Um, I don't know what he would think about right now. I mean, he died on the Monday. Donald Trump was elected on a Tuesday. We didn't hear, of course, till Thursday. Um but yeah, we we will miss Leonard. Uh, he was he was a philosopher. He was a poet. He was a uh, he was the legendary lover. <laughs> that must have had some pressure. Um, <laughs> yes. But uh, yeah, we'll miss him and we'll remember him for a long time. So you mentioned listening parties earlier, and I, I made a note of this because 
I don't think I've ever been to one. I, I've heard about them. I hear, you know, you hear things. And and I always thought they were kind of a fiction. You know, in mm. I think the movie Gimme Shelter, you see the Rolling Stones sitting around listening to the first mix of Wild Horses. And they're just like literally laying on the floor. Keith's eyes are closed. And they're like, like, what are they like? Tell me about a listening party. Well, they've changed a lot. They yeah. used to be, you know, massive events. when uh, and, and it's different because a listening party, when you're promoting a record, right. when you want reviewers and, you know, fans and, and, um, and tastemakers to be listening to it is a different thing. And, yeah, they're boozy and they're, yeah. you know, loud. And all of that. But when you're listening for the first time to an artist's record, um, either as the A&R person or, or the head of the label, um, it's, uh, it's fraught. Yeah. It's a very anxious situation, <laughs> right? Because you go into these beautiful studios with gorgeous speakers, and the, the artist is, is they, they want you to love it. And they're I've proud poured my of soul it. into they this. Have, and they're proud of their babies. And, and, then, and you, as, uh, on the record side, w- also want to love it, right? right. You, you want it to be a huge hit, and so you can put all your efforts behind it. But that moment when, you know, everybody settles down, and then the engineer sort of cues it up and pushes up the fader and you start to listen, that is hugely anxious. But if the music is good, you know right away right. because it's a it's a um, it's an osmotic thing. It's an organic thing, right? If if it's a hit in terms of commercial radio and, and we are formulated by, you know, repeat listening to understand what a hit is. Um, your your body starts to anticipate the changes in the music. You start to feel it right away. Um, even even your you know your chest cavity yeah. becomes resonant for for the bass tones. And when the song ends, and if you know it's a hit, that moment of silence in the room, it's like going to see a great symphony when people <laughs> you don't want to be the first one to clap because you don't want to spoil that crystalline right. moment. That's what it's like. And that is like a junkie needs the good stuff. Once you've been there, you crave it. And you crave it for your artists as well. Have you ever had to be the person in the suit that says... I'm sorry, I don't hear a hit. Yes. Oh, oh it's all. And how soul destroying is that for it's you? It's soul destroying, but it's also, you know, normally you wouldn't sign an artist unless you know that there are already some great elements there. Right. So, and that's when you bring a team in, right? That's when, you know, maybe we can remix it when we can bring a producer in. You know, who do you love to listen to? Maybe we can get that person. So then you start working on it. And, and yeah, you can overwork a record. Um, but ultimately, um, you want it to be up to bat, to be in the, the most ears possible, possible, sorry, and to help further that artist's career. So you, everybody wants a hit. Are, are records as important now? Because I know there used to be people that were specializing in sequencing, mm-hmm. you know, so that the songs flowed <laughs> in a important. certain way. But, yeah. but is it important now? I think I think it's because still people is. listen differently now. Well, they do, and and I think there's an age difference, if I could even say that. I mean, I'm of of the school where I will, you know, buy a record I love here. If I love the artist, I want to hear all ten yeah. songs, yeah. and I'll go home and I'll lie on the floor and I'll put my headphones on, and sometimes it takes repeat listenings before you know the the record. Sometimes the records that become your favorite lifelong records are the ones that were hard. Right. You had to, for, you know, Joni Mitchell's Mingus, yeah, right? Yeah, or yeah. or Thel- anything by Thelonious Monk. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the, 
younger people, she said, kids <laughs> these days, she actually said that out loud, um, have a different relationship with music, right? They download singles, they, they, um, they put them in playlists, they share them with their friends, they're, they're sometimes more disposable, right. they're used to being fed more often, and so the industry has changed that artists continue to put out content um, so that they can actually stay in mm-hmm. in the in front of of their fan base. Yeah, the Justin Bieber example is is that to a T. Totally, yeah. and it, and I think it, it puts different pressures on artists in terms of being able to create. And artists are already pressured enough. Yeah. I mean, really, they have to. It's a very yin yang existence, right? They have to be. They have to be porous enough to, to feel the world and to retreat into their, you know, intimate space where they can create the music. And then they, so they have to be introverts on one level. Mm-hmm. And then they have to be extroverts when they go out into the world yeah, yeah. And, and try and sell it. And that life of judgment, right? Here's my work. Do you like it? Do you like me? Is, uh, is very difficult for artists. Um, and I think that's why we have the 27 Club. And yeah, I think it's yeah. also why we have personalities, right? We had David Bowie was the Thin White Duke yeah. or Zig, Zig, Ziggy Stardust, Lady Gaga. You know, a lot of times that's how artists cope with the whole idea of constant judgment. That's it, that's all. Denise Donlin, the book is called Fearless as Possible Under the Circumstances. It would make a great Boxing Day present. It would make a great gift. Now that Christmas is passed for any time of the year. It's a fantastic read. Thanks to Denise for coming by the House of Krauss. Thanks to you for supporting us this year. Every week, every Monday, without fail, we put up a new show. We always look forward to your rap at the door when you come to visit us here at the House of Krauss. Tell your friends and be sure to check back every week because you never know who's going to stop by for a visit. It just might be one of your favorite people.